Welcome to the Beyond the Reiki Gateway podcast with Reiki Masters Kathleen Johnson and Andrea Kennedy. Journey with us and let's explore what lies beyond the Reiki Gateway. Welcome everyone to another episode of Beyond the Reiki Gateway. I'm Kathleen, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrea. Today, we have the honor of welcoming Nicholas Pearson. You may remember that Nicholas was a guest on our show back in April of 2021. And here he is almost a year later to meet with us and discuss what he's been doing. And spoiler alert, he's been very busy. For those of you who are not familiar with Nicholas, He is a certified teacher and practitioner of Usui Reiki Ryoho. He is an avid researcher, prolific author, and widely respected in mineral science and crystal healing. He began his Reiki journey in 2006 and has trained in both traditional Japanese and Western forms of Reiki. He is certified as both a medical Reiki master and an animal Reiki practitioner. He serves on the board of directors of the Shelter Animal Reiki Association and formerly served on the advisory council for the National Reiki and Healthcare Certification Initiative. We are so excited to have you back with us, Nicholas. I understand you are currently teaching a class called the Shamanic Roots of Reiki, and we're going to be talking about the connections between shamanism and the system of Reiki. It's going to be very interesting to hear your take on it because, honestly, I consider you an expert in this regard, in addition to being an expert in many other fields. But I'm very interested to hear what you have to say about the connections and the history between shamanism and Reiki. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And thank you both for having me back on. I'm I'm really excited. And uh, I think it'll be a great conversation for us today. I don't know a lot about shamanism. So to bring Reiki into that and compare and contrast and learn more, I'm pretty excited about that. And I want to second everything Kathleen said, her enthusiasm, because I do also consider you quite an expert, Nicholas. You're just not a dabbler like I know I am in some things, but you just go so deep. And so I like that roots in the title of your workshop, because I think that that highlights how you approach things, at least in my view. So yes, what about shamanism? What is it, first of all, I guess? And then how is it practiced in Japan? Well, thank you. And this is a really good place to get started. So, you know, when we say the word shaman or even shamanism, we aren't describing a a really perfect conglomeration of things that all resemble one another and are distributed evenly and all use the same definitions of terms. So we have to kind of acknowledge the complexity that when we try to take an indigenous word like shaman, which comes from a particular group of people in the region of Siberia, and use their word and use their practice as the prototype for other people, things just aren't going to line up. So very loosely speaking, you know, kind of putting our academic hats on, the word shaman can mean a bunch of different things. But the overarching themes that we see are in the prototype of the shaman, we have someone who has the ability to enter another state of consciousness at will and typically uses that ability to commune with the ecosystem of spirit all around us and often does that on behalf of other people. So the shaman is the intermediary. We could say that there are a few different roles that the shaman wears. So we have that intermediary, which often leads them to the role of healer. They tend to be this sort of lineage bearer, whether that is an unbroken lineage from a a human teacher to a human student or uh, a lineage that is kind of transmitted through the spirit realm into, you know, the, the embodied practitioner. They tend to be the storytellers, the wisdom keepers, the historians, and sometimes it's as much about myth and poetry as it is, uh, we'll say, fact and truth. There, there's a truth to poetry, but it's it's not necessarily measurable by the same standards. And then the shaman tends to be the initiator as well, someone who can give us that initial experience of the other side. And you know, ultimately, if we think about the role of someone who is embodying the practice of Reiki, particularly a teacher, we see these same five roles as intermediary, healer, lineage bearer, wisdom keeper, and initiator all kind of wrapped up into it. So I find 
a lot of correlation between the system of Reiki and the, the big umbrella that is shamanism. And if we focus our discussion very specifically on what shamanism has historically looked like in Japan from times very, very ancient up until times very recent, because it, it still is an ongoing practice, we see that there is a lot of continuity with the system of Reiki and that perhaps there is even some direct or indirect inspiration for the founder of Reiki, Usui Mikao. So uh, shamanism in Japan has a very unique flavor, like most things Japanese. It is often a, a kind of partnership role. The idea of a singular role of shaman is sometimes split into two different parties in the standard of Japanese shamanism. You have this sort of uh, partnership of an ascetic, someone who undergoes the process of intense purification. This person is often the sort of intermediary who, who mediates or helps the more passive party, which is sometimes referred to as the medium. And there are local indigenous terms for both of these parties in different parts of Japan. Their exact titles and, and kind of acceptance in society differs depending on time period and geography. But then the, the passive party, the, the one who is mediated rather than the mediator, is traditionally a woman, but is not always the case. And she becomes the sort of mouthpiece for the divine or for that ecosystem of spirits. So ancestors might speak through her. Gods might speak through her. The consciousness of an ancient forest might speak through her, as well as the less pleasant spirits, the things that might be the cause of calamity or sickness. And as we see it in Japan, shamanism is far from a monolith. We've got you know very, very ancient practices that we see recorded in texts that are hundreds, if not thousands of years old. And then we've got sort of like a, a boom in the spiritual arts, the spiritual studies, the reigaku, as we call them in Japanese, that really started in the 19th century, mid-19th century, but have continued. And they are kind of contemporaneous with a lot of the, what we call shinshukyo, which means new sect teachings or new religious movements in Japan. And that sort of fertile ground began because of the opening of Japan's borders to the outside world, the beginning of trade, the re-centralization of political and spiritual power under the emperor for the first time in centuries. And it was this big push towards modernization that caused people to want to embrace the modern, but also find roots to the ancient world and kind of bridge and syncretize the two. And, and blending things is a very Japanese approach. And it was out of that same, we'll say, soil that the seeds for Reiki were sown and blossomed. And although it didn't develop into a Shinshukyo, a, a wholehearted religion, it shares a lot of elements that are in common with them. And part of those elements are, are drawing from traditional Japanese practices, which are ultimately built upon the same foundations that Japanese shamanism is built upon. It's not to say they are a one-for-one one, you know, equality there, but they definitely have a, a deep relationship. That's really fascinating, Nicholas. And I, I'm wondering if you could give some examples of how Japanese spiritual practices influenced the development and the system of Reiki. For sure. Wonderful question. Thank you. And so uh, one of my best ways to illustrate this, first and foremost, is to look to primary documents. So I, I like to be a little bit of a history nerd. So we have exactly one document that Usui himself wrote, the founder of the system of Reiki, and it is kind of collected in a little, very, very little uh, manual that's handed out to members of the society that he founded in 1922. Uh, I think the, the earliest publication is the kind of mid-1920s, although most of the ones that have circulated into the West and gotten translated are later editions of them, but the core text is the same. And there's a, a short essay from him and then a little question and answer section. That portion of the manual is called the Kokai Denju Setsume, or the explanation for open teaching. In other words, at that point, just about anyone could sign up and, and, and learn. And he tells us some things about his practice, about his life that are, are really helpful for kind of understanding context. And then also on his memorial stone, which was erected the same year that he passed away, that tells us uh, a little bit more about his life. Sui states that his Reiki Ryoho is completely original, never before experienced, just absolutely one of a kind. He talks about how he performed austerities on the mountain. And we can kind of circle back to the unpack that term in a little bit and says that he was kind of blessed with this mysterious gift that he acquired accidentally. So we, we know he wasn't 
outright seeking a hands-on healing system from his own words and from the words of his successors who erected that stone. And we can tell from his life story that's written on the stone that he had a lot of interests. It tells us outright that he studied history and medicine, both Christian and Buddhist scriptures. He was interested in uh, a word we might translate as psychology, but at the same time, it might have meant more like spiritual healing at the time he was alive because the, the words have changed meaning over over this century. He studied Taoism, divination, the art of incantation or magic or spellcraft, physiognomy, and that it was all of these widespread interests that, that nourished his ability to build this platform out of which Reiki was born. And it was the key to creating what they called Reho, or which is kind of like a contraction of the words Reiki, Rioho, or Reiki healing method. So if we if we compare, we see elements of things like esoteric Buddhism. We see themes that are common to Shinto, which is the indigenous religion of Japan. We see elements of other new religious movements and other spiritual practices that kind of emerge. And sometimes it's in the form of practice. Sometimes it's in the name of the techniques. For example, a Japanese Reiki technique that is part of a collection of exercises that we call Hatsudeho, which means the method of generating spirit, or maybe uh, more poetically, the method of generating Reiki within us. The third part of that is frequently called Seishin Toitsuho, which we loosely translate as like the method for purification and unification with spirit. A, another practice in Japan used the exact same term to describe a form of what what scholars call mediated spirit possession, which sounds spookier than it really is. But this Seishin Toitsuho that came from a, a different system was based on an ancient Shinto ritual, actually two of them combined that were propagated by a new religion called Omoto, which was at one point the most powerful and widespread of all of these organizations and still is very popular today. I was lucky enough in 2009 to spend some time in their headquarters and got to practice their own kind of unique martial arts and meditative practices. And there's a a very deeply Japanese spirit to it. But, you know, the idea is that even if Reiki is not outright we'll say Japanese shamanism, it's not, you know, a perfect distillation of it. I think we see evidence in Isui's life story and the kinds of practices woven into the early system of Reiki, which of course are the same practices we have today. They've just been translated from one culture to the next over a century. We see the DNA of shamanism in it. We see that it is the roots of Reiki are deep within there. Thank you, Nicholas. That was very illuminating. And I appreciate the detail in your response those of us who teach Reiki, we go through the history of Reiki and, of course, Usui's story. For those in our audience who are not Reiki practitioners, could you explain in a little more detail who Mikao Usui was and why he's relevant here, if you don't mind? Yes. So Usui Sensei was born in 1865, a time of really great change and uncertainty in, in Japan, because just three years later, in 1868, the Meiji Emperor was um, installed as the, the central leader of Japan. That was a big change from the previous centuries. And he had a pretty atypical life story for a Japanese person. You know, what, what would have been traditional would be to go to primary school at the local temple because he lived in a pretty rural area. There was not a separate school. And then to attend secondary school wherever you could. And he did both of those things. And that's about where the typical part of his story ends. We would expect uh, a man in his era to inherit the family business and to commit himself to doing that, to take care of mom and dad until the end of their lives, and that his eldest son would do the same for him and inherit the family business. But rather than doing one thing and one thing only for the rest of his life, Usui studied a lot of different things, just like it says right there on the memorial stone. There are some anecdotal stories, not all of them with firm evidence, that he had a lot of different jobs, that he was a, a journalist of some sort. We know what his pen name was, but we can't track down what publication he authored. We understand that he might have worked in sort of the public service sector as the kaban mocha or the like personal assistant. It literally means like briefcase carrier for Shinpei Goto. This is something we don't have a lot of evidence for, but it, it feels like it could be possible. Uh, he worked as an entrepreneur and started more than one business in his lifetime. It is said that he was a, a sort of lay uh, missionary or lay priest, if you will, in one of the you know authorized Shinto sects of the time. And some of those authorized sects were not actually like pure Shinto, but were some of those new religious movements. So it may be possible he belonged to one of them. And he, he wore a lot of different hats. And as a result, 
we expect that he tried all of these different things on his big quest for inner peace. That seems to be the dominant narrative. You know, we have this sort of Western mythologized story of Reiki history that was taught by Hawaii Takata, that he was a Christian minister, that he worked at Doshisha University as a teacher and was questioned by his students about, you know, the factual nature of the stories in the Bible and the ability for Jesus to heal. And that's what started this whole quest for healing. And although that might not be entirely true, we'll say. I think the idea that he was a curious person, that he was devoted to learning, that he was devoted to learning about spirituality is really evident in his life story. So after several failed attempts at lasting happiness through capitalism and and other things, he turned his heart towards spirituality. We know that somewhere around, we'll say approximately 1918, he checked into a Zen temple or Zen monastery in the Kyoto area. There are a lot of Zen temples in Kyoto, so we don't know which one. Nobody's ever been able to track down those records because there could be hundreds, if not thousands, and not all of them still have their records. You know, Japan did experience quite a lot of damage in, in the Pacific War or World War II, so you know, some of those records could be totally gone by this point. And after what is said to be about three years of time there, unable to achieve enlightenment, he asks his teacher, well, what do I do? And the answer he gets is sometimes you just have to be prepared to die. So he he understands that there is more than one kind of meaning in this message, this piece of advice. And he climbs a local mountain, Mount Kudama, which is possible to just go and be out in nature. It's not a really intense hike or climb. I mean, it it takes some energy. If you've never done it, it's certainly steep, but it's not one of those very tall, pointy kinds of mountains. And there's a lot of history, a lot of myth, a lot of relationship to different spiritual traditions that have been rooted in or connected to that mountain. We don't know that he was necessarily involved in any of those practices. We don't know that that's necessarily why he chose it. It could have been proximity. It's a great mountain to go to. It's beautiful, it's scenic, and it's nearby. Those are all really great reasons too. We can't presume to know all the details. But after about 21 days of fasting and performing these austerities, as it says on his memorial stone, he felt a great Reiki. Daideiki are the words that you see on the memorial stone and right over his head. And after that, it resulted in him attaining enlightenment and acquiring Reiki Ryoho, acquiring the ability to heal with Reiki. And, you know, returning to his teacher, he had several miracles down the mountain, you know, healing experiences and different traditions tell slightly different stories. So some say that he tripped on the the roots of the hinoki, the the cypress trees, which is really easy to do. I've tripped over this very same roots on the same mountain. And he he healed his toe and said that he healed toothache in a nearby inn. And when he finally made it to his teacher, the heat that came from his hands was so soothing to his teacher's arthritis that his teacher said, I think this is what you should do. The, The enlightenment is great, but maybe you should find a way to give this healing to other people and help them use it. And so that's how the system of Usui Reiki Ryoho, Usui's Reiki healing method, was born. Thank you for recapping that story. And it's a beautiful one for sure. And I did want to touch on that, especially at the end. You said his method. And there were other styles of Reiki previous to this in Japan. Is that correct? There definitely were a lot of different healing systems that emerged in this era. We find evidence of a lot of the new religious movements involving hands-on or even hands-off healing. Today, if we kind of collect all of the new religious movements and other related practices, some of them are non-religious, but but kind of emerged from that same era, we might have hundreds and hundreds of different styles of healing that came from there. And some of them called their practice Reiki Ryoho. Some of them used the words Reiki, but didn't necessarily call it Ryoho. And then lots of other terms were also used. So what Usui was focusing on was that his method was separate from all of those. He used the words Rei and Ki to describe the phenomenon involved, and that it was a, a complete method, Ryoho, healing method. So when we kind of spell that together, spell that out together, it it differentiates it from other systems of healing, other systems that used Reiki, other hands-on healing practice, and, and certainly separates it from the religious ones because none of those words, at least in his era, had an outright religious connotation either because he really wanted a secular practice. And that's evident from his explanation of open teaching, the Kokai Denju Setsume. He, he didn't want to kind of reserve this for the elite or the special. It was for everyone. I think one of the biggest blessings of this system, from my perspective, is the fact that it is open to everyone. I don't know how in-depth it is even possible, really, to go into these other healing methods 
beside Usui's, but is their shamanism also involved in the other styles and not just Usui's, or is that more highlighted in Usui's system? The, we'll say the DNA of Japanese shamanism is extant in a lot of these traditions. Some of them really embrace it outright. So some of the hallmarks that we see, you know, we've talked about like big picture, what is shamanism, but what are the the signs that someone might might be a shaman? What is the feature of the prototypic shaman? So this could be really helpful to help us understand how it relates to Reiki specifically, but also some of these other groups. So traditionally, the prototypic shaman receives some kind of supernatural gift from the spirit world, and that is often preceded by a period of illness or crisis. The gift bestowed by the spirit realm happens during an initiatory experience wherein the soul of the body usually travels outside The soul of the shaman usually travels outside of the body. We have the ability of the shaman to enter the altered states of consciousness at will and specifically uses this ability to communicate with gods, ancestors, spirits, sometimes animals and and other things. The shaman demonstrates what's called the mastery of fire. And this is a a term that Mircea Iliade, who's kind of controversial, he's got a lot of criticism these days, but I think, you know, he did the best he could with the tools he had in his era. He wrote one of the early works on, on shamanism that kind of compared and contrasted shamanistic practices from around the world. And he, he thinks that this mastery of fire is really important, not just for the prototype of the shaman from the Siberian area, but in in other places. This might be demonstrated in someone's ability to tend to the fire, to walk across coals, to withstand heat, or most importantly, to generate an inner fire or inner warmth. And then the this kind of prototype of the shaman has a special collection of tools, investments that aid the work. And, you know, let's let's look kind of broadly at at shamanism in Japan. You know, we've got all of those features there. Different kinds of shamans might have different physical tools, but there are certainly some more abstract tools like words of power. Maybe that's a special mantra or a symbol that gets repeated, recited, or meditated upon. You've got the ability to alter consciousness. You have contact with the spirit world. Maybe those are ancestors. Maybe that is a kami or, or a god or a Buddha or a bodhisattva because there are many different kind of, we'll say, flavors of shamanism, just like there are many different flavors of spirituality in Japan. We have practices that focus on the acquisition of power, others that focus very specifically on purification and very widespread rituals of healing. So we can find all six of those things, purification, acquisition of power, spirit contact, the words of power, symbols and spells, and rituals of healing in Reiki. We also find them in other practices in Japan. And in Reiki, they they feel a little less, we'll say, shamanistic on the surface because Reiki really is this kind of secularized practice that is intended for everyone. What Usui experienced on the mountaintop and what he distilled into the system of Reiki may not be identical because, you know, thankfully, we can enroll in a weekend seminar and come out Reiki practitioners. We don't have to climb a mountain and fast and perform austerities for 21 days to receive initiation from the universe. So I kind of like what he's given us because I really like food. I don't know that I could go 21 days without it. And, you know, the the same kind of, we'll say, egalitarian approach of being able to transmit the, the practice of of whatever whatever the practice looks like is, is also used in a lot of these other traditions. So in Reiki, some of those core principles are, are are veiled under many layers, but in other systems of healing and spiritual practice in Japan, they're very outright. So, you know, the big one, if we talk about shifting consciousness to commune with spirits, you know, this is not generally something we talk about in Reiki practice outright. We do, in many traditions, talk about Reiki guides, kind of obliquely. We often have photographs of Usui-sensei, the founder, and some prominent teachers like Hayashi Chujiro or Hawaii Takada or Yamaguchi Chio displayed in our classes. And sometimes we kind of reflect upon them before an initiation to kind of ceremonially connect and, and honor them and maybe even ask for their assistance when we initiate others. So there are ways we have this, but then you've got other traditions in Japan where like mediated spirit contact or mediated spirit position is just outright like, okay, so we've got someone who's going to, you know, help us with this process. You're going to go into meditation and you're going to be the mouthpiece for the gods or the spirits or the ancestors. So what we experience in Reiki is, we'll say, uh, a little more tangential to some of these topics. And in some of the other systems you find in Japan, it is less thinly veiled. It's it's just outright a, a modernized form of indigenous folk religion, indigenous shamanism. 
With that in mind, Nicholas, in your opinion, and this is only, I'm asking only for your opinion, do you consider those who practice Reiki to be shamans of a sort? This is a really good question. I think before I can award anyone the title of shaman, I have to acknowledge the kind of complexity that comes from being a white person of privilege living in Turtle Island, talking about indigenous beliefs and practices. So I think Reiki is innately shamanistic. I don't think that anyone is owed the title of shaman unless unless it has been conferred to you through traditional means. So we can practice Reiki as modern day shamanism. I personally would not call myself a shaman because I, I, I believe that is not something that I am owed just because I'm a Reiki practitioner or just because I've done this research. I think that is something that, that really comes from the kind of traditional process and practice. And there's a lot of baggage to unpack there that we don't necessarily have to go into, but I think it is possible to practice something shamanic and, and still not have to award yourself that title and, and take it away from the people who've earned it through traditional means. Well said, Nicholas. And for what it's worth, I absolutely agree with you. As you said, Reiki has shamanistic roots, but there is a lot to be acknowledged and taken into account before a Reiki practitioner can truly describe himself or herself as a shaman. So thank you for that. And just a quick follow-up to Kathleen's question then, Nicholas, would you consider Usui Macau to be a shaman? Mm -hmm. I think if I if I try to be as fair as possible, the the only answer that is truthful is I don't know. But if we look at the prototypic features of a shaman, if we look at the traditional roles that shamans have played, it is probably safe to say that all of those criteria are fulfilled. Mm -hmm. um, considering that the, the word shaman itself only exists in modern Japanese as a loan word, from, like a foreign loan word, and that the, the local terms often have such highly specialized meaning that fulfill a very small niche, he probably would not have fulfilled those, those kind of criteria. But you know, using the broader definition of shamanism, I think we could say he fulfills the criteria even if he didn't call himself that. And you know, again, if we look at those prototypic features, some sort of initiatory experience preceded by crisis. He was in financial ruin. He was uh, unwell. He was unfulfilled by life. We could call this crisis. Maybe it's not the traditional initiatory sickness that the Siberian shamans have, but definitely crisis. Um, the crisis was abated by some sort of initiatory process or moment where a spiritual gift was bestowed. Well, we got that one. Um, can enter to alter states of consciousness at will and uses them to commune with the spirits. If we think of Reiki itself, the phenomena of Reiki as, as the spirit in question, then sure, that criterion is also fulfilled. The mastery of fire or the inner heat. I mean, anyone who's a Reiki practitioner today has felt this inner heat. So we've got that there as well. When it comes to the special collection of tools and vestments, we only have the abstract kind. We don't have physical tools because the beautiful thing about the system of Reiki is it requires no external tools. You receive reju or initiation or empowerment or attunement or placement or whatever our form of practice calls it. And then, you know, our tool is right here and also right here and here. So we don't necessarily need the, the external stuff, but we do have those kind of abstract tools, meditations or the giho, the self-development exercises, like the Japanese Reiki techniques. We have the five precepts. We have the symbols and mantras. We have all sorts of things that are, are there as our tools. So I think it is safe to say that the role he fulfilled was a shamanic one, even if we don't want to label him a shaman because there's just not enough evidence to say that he practiced indigenous shamanism. Nicholas, what do you think that modern day current Reiki practitioners can accomplish by learning about the Japanese religions and the shamanic practices? How do you think that can affect their understanding of Reiki? So one of the biggest conversations that I'm finding myself involved in is the idea of, of Reiki through the lens of returning it to its roots out of a desire for cultural exchange and appreciation. You know, first and foremost, just kind of understanding where something has come from helps us appreciate that thing better. You know, whether that's Reiki, whether that is, you know, a particular type of um, cuisine that, that we might be in love with, when, when we really understand how it came to be, we have a deeper understanding of what we're doing in that practice. 
So it's not true of just Japanese things either. It could be you know, literally anything. You, you want to learn the Spanish language. If you understand what happened on the Iberian Peninsula, you better understand the development of this language. So we can apply those rules to, to anything outside of our own culture. But I think the other thing that has happened, in part intentionally to help Reiki move beyond Japan into the outside world, and sometimes unintentionally because people want to fill in the gaps or maybe even because they have an agenda, um, is that Reiki has been separated from those roots. And we end up with something that is a, an effective practice. Reiki of, of any, any lineage or form of practice works as hands-on healing, works for personal development, is an incredible tool. But when those gaps aren't filled in, it is hard to really appreciate the how and the why. You might be tempted to do things a different way just because you don't understand why we do them in, in any given way. And it can lead us to a place where intentionally or not, we are you know, guilty of things like maybe appropriation or, or maybe commodifying someone else's spiritual practice. And that's not what draws people to the system of Reiki. So I don't want anyone to feel guilty just because you have unconsciously taken part in, in any of these kinds of things. But by focusing on the roots of Reiki, by understanding the culture, the spiritual practices, the language even, it helps us have a kind of reverence for the system. And it helps us be willing to sit with the, the awkwardness of, of maybe not being part of that culture of origin. And I, I also want to highlight here that like Reiki itself is not a monolith, not even in its early days. It is not purely born out of Japanese practices. The, the really excellent scholarship of Justin Stein, he's got a, a new book coming out next year that's based on, on his PhD work, focuses on Reiki as the result of circulatory development through the North Pacific. So it's the exchange of ideas into Japan with the opening up of its borders and the rapid modernization, things like um, theosophies, uh, spiritualism, the new thought movement, the sort of early beginnings of what would eventually be the new age came into Japan. And those ideas are also present in the system of Reiki. And one of the things we can do to understand its roots is also to explore the Western ideas that got imported into it. So ultimately, looking at the, the traditions that preceded Reiki that built the foundation that Reiki itself was built upon, helps us be more respectful, be more informed, and maybe even breathe new life into our practice. You know, one thing that I notice is that it is easy to get stuck, especially when your practice looks very simple. You know, you, you sit in a class, you're given these five precepts, in second degree, you get some um, symbols and mantras, and then you're taught to like do this hands-on stuff. And that can get stagnant, we'll say, unless you're really, really engaged with it. So by enriching our understanding of what all of those elements are, it keeps our practice flowing, juicy, engaging. It helps us grow a little deeper. And nobody needs to you know, receive initiation into esoteric Buddhism to practice Reiki. Nobody has to like go climb a mountain and fast and, and become a, a hermit to practice Reiki. The beautiful thing is that none of those things are required. And it's all distilled right there in the tools that we've got in front of us. So sometimes we just have to understand the how and the why to better understand the what that is the tool itself. And I would imagine that that better understanding helps ground our practice, which I could see would then fuel our inspiration, our intuition, as far as the way we might practice for ourselves and engage with the energy. I, I would think it would help us in our own creativity in our practice because we would feel more comfortable, perhaps more connected with the the history and with the foundation. Would you agree? Absolutely. Honoring where something has come helps us stay engaged in the present and prepares us for the trajectory of where it's going. And that's both personal and, and planetary. So what does my practice, just me as Nicholas, look like? Where has it been? Where did it come from? How did it come to me? How do I sit with it now? Where is it going to take me? But also like, where has Reiki, the big umbrella that is all Reiki traditions, where does it come from? Where is it now? Where is it going? By staying really engaged, it helps us navigate changes that are going on in the, the micro and the macro. It helps enrich our individual healing processes. The beautiful thing about embracing Reiki as a shamanic art, even if not as shamanism outright, it's going to maybe open the door to 
techniques or phenomena that we might have been unprepared for in traditional training. You know, if if you're sitting there in, in your Reiki practice and you start to receive communication from some disembodied voice, you know, maybe if if we if we get a little bit of understanding that Reiki is a shamanic art and opens the door to spirit contact, whatever we're going to define that as, then then we're prepared for it. And this is a really widespread phenomenon that, you know, even my book kind of neglects this because it's just not really spelled out in traditional Reiki. But you look at teachers of traditional Reiki in Japan, and they write about similar experiences and in their memoirs, in, in interviews and things. So why not prepare people for that? Why not prepare people for the fact that practicing Reiki almost universally expands people in their kind of psychic or intuitive capacities? Why not prepare them for being able to meet this ecosystem of spirit all around them? Why not help them learn tools that keep them grounded during the really woo-woo kind of stuff? You know, it's great to work in the theoretical, the historic, the academic side, but ultimately it's got to be practical. And if we understand how Reiki comes from this really rich framework of practice in Japan that, again, is not monolithic, then we can also understand why so many of us have such different experiences in our Reiki practices. And by sharing those, by kind of softening the boundaries uh, among lineages and teachers and schools and styles, then we can draw from the many resources that are available to us. And if more of us are having conversations like this, and more of us are having uh, a deeper connection to the roots, it prepares us to be a more unified community that is also centered in you know, the, the culture of origin, that is doing the work to stay in relationship to the soul of the system of Reiki. And I think that is a really important part of the work too. I so agree. Thank you for that. And, you know, I look back at my very first Reiki class and yeah, there was no talk of any intuition or any, any Japanese Reiki techniques or anything back then. And that very much shaped how I started to practice. And I appreciate you bringing that side up. You're looping this back to its history. And I think it's so relevant today to have this conversation and you to bring this to the forefront, I think is really powerful. And I can see where Reiki practitioners could very much be helped and supported in their practice. This is is very enlightening. Nicholas, how does the line of thought that you elaborated about shamanic Reiki differ from other perspectives on Reiki and shamanism? What are your thoughts? So there are a handful of books that are out there that talk about shamanic Reiki. There are teachers who kind of graft what they call core shamanism or core shamanic techniques onto the system of Reiki. And a lot of these practices come from indigenous people in places like Central and South America and North America. And while I think the intention is a noble one to expand our toolbox and to provide people with additional resources. The nature of taking two things that are geographically, culturally, linguistically, historically unrelated and blending them together can do a disservice to both if if we aren't rooted in right relationship with both of those traditions. So focusing on what shamanistic practice has looked like in Japan, how it has shaped the scenery out of which Reiki was born, I think gets us rooted in that kind of right relationship, right perspective on what shamanism meant to people in Usui's day, what shamanism meant in you know 1950s Japan even, and, and how it has shaped modern day Reiki practice. And while, again, I don't, I don't believe in, in shaming people for learning the techniques they've learned and, and, and anything like that. If we are taking practices from the Amazon jungle and applying them to a, a Japanese spiritual healing system that emerged in 1922, we have two very different things. And it's not to say they're incompatible. Reiki is extremely malleable. It supports the work of so many other things, but it it disconnects us from the source of Reiki. It disconnects us from the cultural source, not the energy source. You know, that that phenomenon is woven through all things. There's nothing we can do to cut ourselves off from that. So I think shifting the focus toward where Reiki has been helps us kind of stay rooted in, in the cultural appreciation, in cultural exchange, in a sense of respect and reverence. 
And I know a lot of people who are attracted to Reiki are also attracted to other forms of shamanism and seamlessly blend them in beautiful ways in their practice. So again, not not trying to condemn or condone, just observing that I think there is really something magical that happens when we, we take Reiki and kind of recontextualize it within the framework out of which it arose. And that's not to say it doesn't fit other contexts, but when we put it back into that frame, there is a very peculiar kind of magic that happens. And it's something that I've been experiencing in my own practice and I'm hoping to share more and more. Thank you for that. If I understand you correctly, you are saying that you think it imperative that we look into these other practices and become aware of them and their complexity and perhaps their connection to the system of Reiki before just kind of jumping in and adopting them. We need to treat them more with reverence and respect and an acknowledgement of where they come from. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, whether we're talking about the practices of the indigenous people of Japan or, you know, other tools in our toolbox that come from other parts of the world, including the modern day world, anytime we understand exactly the systems, the philosophies, the principles, the practices that went into making that, it helps us really understand how it's going to impact our lives, impact the lives of our clients. And at the end of the day, Reiki is an inherently practical thing. It's about practice. So we got to you know, definitely ground it in the everyday. But if we just, w- without awareness, without respect, without uh, reverence for the different tools in our toolbox, I think it can do a disservice to the person on the table because I can't tell you the number of times I've done a Reiki session or taught a class to someone who was familiar with someone else's approach to Reiki and they've gone, wow, that was really nice. But, you know, um, did you did did you not get the complete training because you didn't lay rocks on me and there weren't any singing bowls and you didn't you didn't use any essential oils and then we have to have a conversation about those kinds of tools and again reiki is malleable it can support it can interweave with all of those things but it isn't those things so if we're practicing core shamanism from another culture or if we're practicing you know sound healing and reiki or if we're practicing something inspired by the indigenous practices of Japan and Reiki, we still have to acknowledge where those things start and stop. Where does Reiki begin and end? And where do those other practices take over? Because otherwise we are treating it as a commodity. We are treating it as a a thing we own. We're treating it as nothing more than an inert tool. And anyone who has an experience of practicing Reiki, sometimes even just merely the experience of receiving Reiki, knows that it is more than just an inert tool. It is a deep and profound spiritual practice. There are practical components. There are measurable things, tangible things. The clinical data out there is really robust to show us that Reiki does something that we can measure. Um, it doesn't always agree on, on what it's measuring, but it's there. So irrespective of what our practice looks like, change happens. But I think when our practice comes from this really respectful place, this really mindful place, we get more repeatable results. We get more out of our personal growth and development. And that's really the name of the game. If we look at like the whole title of the system of Reiki in, in Japanese, it's more than just Usui Reiki Ryoho, it's Shinshin Kaizen Usui Reiki Ryoho, which means the improvement of heart, mind, and body. In that order specifically, the primacy of mind or spirit is there. So Reiki is about personal development. And it is difficult to be involved in something wholeheartedly if we aren't respectful of the practice itself. So we don't expect ourselves to improve if we aren't invested in improving Reiki and allowing Reiki to improve us. And that just comes out of the relationship we've got with it. So I think that is really what the name of the game is here with this kind of concept. Okay, thank you. And I agree. And you mentioned practice. And we call it a practice for a reason, right? We say that fairly often on on our podcast. It's called a practice. And the more we practice, I think, intentionally and mindfully and being aware of what we are working with, with reverence and respect, I think, at least in my case, the deeper our relationship with the energy becomes. And that then, of course, benefits me as well as the people with whom I work and, of course, the energy itself. So practice is mandatory. You just cannot get away from that. And I think that's something that all Reiki practitioners need to be aware of. And so with practice in mind, Nicholas, are there some simple techniques that listeners can incorporate into their practice 
to be more in touch with the shamanic roots of of the system of Reiki? Absolutely. And here's the great news. To learn these techniques, it is not required that we hop on the first plane and go to Japan, find an indigenous practitioner and beg them to teach us. (laughs) It's, It's all the stuff that is embedded in the system of Reiki. So, you know, start with what does our everyday practice look like? Do we have that hands-on experience? You know, that that just practice of hands-on healing in and of itself, because it is both a ritual of healing and also a, a form of purification, you know, that checks a couple of categories off of the list of those, those six kind of themes that show up in the shaman's toolbox. With the acquisition of power, there are these Japanese Reiki techniques or Gyoho, sometimes they're even called Gyoho by some Japanese practitioners. And Gyoho is actually the same word that's used to describe the austerities performed by mountain ascetics and, and shamans in Japan. So this could be very simple, like Gasho Meso, meditating in Gasho. It could be something like the uh, Kenyokuho the Joshin Kokyuho and the Seishin Toitsuho. So these are the dry bathing technique, the breathing down into the hara in the second part of that process, and then breathing with the hands in gasho, in and out, the collection of these three exercises called Hatsudeho in Japanese, or the method to generate rei, or method to generate reiki in the body with spirit contact. You know, there's not necessarily an outright way we see that in the system of Reiki, but many of us have the spontaneous experience. I have a colleague, Rebecca Ostel-Clausen, who just began to observe data with her uh, students and a very large percentage of her Reiki students who come from clinical backgrounds spontaneously experience after-death communication with loved ones on the other side um, in the context of uh, Reiki one class. So these are people who are themselves professionals who who come from more clinical backgrounds and it's just happens spontaneously. So engaging with your meditation, your hands on healing, doing these things often kind of opens us up to that. And of course, it, it kind of looks different depending on what our frame of reference is to the spirit world. And when it comes to words of power, reciting the Gokai, using the symbols and mantras and you know, committing to these things regularly, using them, using them without an expectation that they're going to do something for you. They will, but that's not, that's not the reason we do them. We do them for the sake of practice. There's a a teaching in Tibetan Buddhism that I will, I will paraphrase very poorly, but it's something to the effect of without power, our practice is useless. So if you look at like the Tibetan lamas, the monks who are, you know, reciting their lawn mantras and dharanis and using mudras and meditating for many hours, there, there is of course a personal benefit, but the reason that they go through that and experience a personal benefit isn't really about them. It's so that they can hone these tools, they can sharpen the skills that come, the the cities or the, the spiritual abilities to use on behalf of other beings. Because at the end of the day, Reiki is an art of compassion. It's right there in our five precepts, you know, just for today, don't anger, don't worry, practice gratitude, be diligent in your work and show compassion or show kindness to people. And all of those other things come to a head in the art of compassion. So if we are practicing the system of Reiki through the lens of it being a shamanistic practice, and we're having those kind of expanded states of awareness and experiencing those spiritual phenomena, we're doing it for the sake of Reiki. We're doing it so we can show up better for others. Yes, it benefits us because even as a passive intermediary, I place my hands on someone else, I always receive that benefit. And it's the same when when we're doing any of these other things, we do it for that compassionate reason. So we don't want it to feed the ego. We don't want it to take us to some other place. We're not doing this to award ourselves a special title of uh, shaman. We're, we're doing this because we're here. We're devoted to the practice. And we're devoted to the well-being of all sentient beings. And that's what Reiki is really about. Beautifully said, Nicholas. Yes, I'm really glad you said that. I always think of Reiki as standing in service. That's when I am channeling Reiki for the benefit of even myself or for someone else, I am in service. And that's what it's all about, at least my interpretation. Yes, absolutely. It's such a gift, undoubtedly, yes. Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly. Nicholas, you've been such a well of wisdom. 
Now, for our listeners, if they would like to delve a little deeper and learn more about what you've talked about, can you offer some resources or recommendations? And before I let you answer that, let me just say that I know you have a new book coming out in April, and that would probably be a wonderful resource. Our audience would greatly appreciate it, as would Andrea and I. Absolutely. So, you know, if anyone is interested in learning more about the kind of intersection between Reiki and shamanism, currently there there is no neatly packaged place to to get all of that. But we can certainly learn about Japanese spirituality, read books written by Japanese people, you know, learn a little bit about Shinto, learn about esoteric Buddhism. You can find some good resources for that online. Also try enrolling in a Reiki class that is a little bit more Japanese-centered. Maybe you'll take a Jikiden Reiki seminar or Komyo or Gendai Reiki Ho or Reido Reiki or other systems that some being more, I will say, closely aligned with the historical roots and others more modernized. Again, no, no judgment on either of those. It's all all great. And then engage with your local Japanese-American community. If you're here in, in North America, you know, the, the history of the relationship between the U.S. and Japan is uh, a complex and challenging one, especially during and after World War II. So I think if we're going to treat Reiki as being connected to Japanese spiritual practice, being connected to Japanese history and Japanese community, we, we got to you know, do right by that as well. So if you've got a local like Japanese American cultural center, a local Japanese Buddhist temple or Shinto shrine in a few cities in the US, then those are great places to interact with the community to stay rooted in that. It's a great way also maybe to have conversations about Reiki because they might be interested in the experience of Reiki too. Um, so those are all great things that you can do. And if you are looking for a, a resource that kind of bridges Western and Japanese styles of Reiki practice, you can check out my book, Foundations of Reiki Ryoho, although it doesn't explicitly talk about uh, Reiki as a shamanic art. I think it'll kind of open some doors and help some light bulbs go off. And if you'd like to learn more about that book or any of my others, you can find them anywhere books are sold. You can also visit my website, which is uh, theluminouspearl.com or visit my publisher's website, innertraditions.com. I do have a monthly newsletter I just started where I'll have lots of great announcements like my brand new book, Flower Essences from the Witch's Garden, Plant Spirits in Magical Herbalism, which also kind of deals with our connection to the natural world from a a different perspective than Reiki or crystals. So it'll be nice to talk about an entirely new topic as, as that book comes out. Wonderful suggestions, Nicholas. Thank you so much. My pleasure. And thank you both for having me on the show. Your newest book is available now, Nicholas, and all of the links, your books, your website, we'll put those in the show notes for our listeners. And we want to just say a final thank you to you, Nicholas, for being our guest and for our loyal listeners. We thank you. Take care. Until we meet again, a final thank you for joining us. And we would certainly invite you to return for another episode as we journey along with you beyond the Reiki Gateway with Kathleen Johnson and Andrea Kennedy.